Well, this is The New Activist. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and what a joy it is to be with you today. We've had a really fun run here, haven't we? First two weeks of the new season, John's Crazy Socks. I just got my crazy socks in the mail. Uh, the other day, I posted a picture of that on Instagram and Twitter, but we love John and that story. And then last week, we got to hear Annie F. Downs and kind of walk through her, her journey of discovery as she learned more about the people of Appalachia and the Christian Appalachian Project. And this week, we get to chat with Sarah Quesada. Sarah is the author of a fairly brand new book. No, I think it's like brand new. It came out, oh yeah, it came out in January. That's still a new book. She's still selling books. <laughs> um, the book is called Love Undocumented, Risking Trust in a Fearful World. And I heard about Sarah and her book through a mutual friend of ours and said, hey, you should check out this book and maybe have her on the show. And you know, so let's check it out and see if we have her on the show. And so here's a description of her book. In Love Undocumented, Sarah takes readers on a journey deep into the world of the U.S. immigration system. Follow her as she walks alongside her new friend, meets with lawyers, stands at the U.S.-Mexico border, and visits immigrants in detention centers. With wisdom from scripture, research, and these experiences, Quesada explores God's call to welcome the stranger and invites Christians to consider how to live faithfully in the world of closed doors and high fences. When I read the description of that book, I thought, well, we, we need to talk to Sarah, which is what we will get to do in a moment. And so I'm going to really start at the beginning of her story. You're going to hear that I ask a ridiculously broad question, but we get to just sort of take a, a quick beat through her life and hear the cliff notes of this book. And my hope is that we will together learn a little bit more about immigration and what it means to be undocumented, because I didn't know much other than what I hear about in the news. And maybe you don't either. Maybe you do. In any event, I hope this conversation is interesting for you. Quick note, you're going to hear me all of a sudden start to talk about a person named Billy. Billy is her husband, and a lot of the book is about him. His story will unfold during the interview, but at first, it's a little bit of a curveball. That's who Billy is. Here is my chat with Sarah Quesada. I would love to start with a really on the nose, boring question, but I think it's pertinent to the whole story, which is where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Yes. So that's just a small question. We'll jump right in to my life story. <laughs> tell me, tell me about your first 18 years. Give it all to me. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I was born and raised in East Tennessee and, um, hmm. my dad was a pastor and a small business owner throughout my childhood. Hmm. So Grew up in a um, evangelical conservative family, pretty politically conservative, um, and you know I, it was the it was evangelicalism in the late '80s and early '90s. So I think a lot of us are familiar with some of that culture of um, you know very much committed to how we live as Christians in the world, um, how we behave, how we um, really try to pursue holiness and those kinds of things. So that was very much kind of the, the religious environment in which I grew up. And, um, and then just that mix of city and country that is East Tennessee, which is just a great mm. place to grow up. And I, I played basketball as a kid. So growing up around the Lady Vols was pretty much amazing. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, that's like, for, for those that don't know, that's, that's a pseudo religion down there. <laughs> yes. It's just interesting um, because you so uh, comfortably say we grew up in this evangelical home and uh, as of late, uh, I mean, really the word evangelical is taking 
quite a shellacking and maybe rightly slow, but it, it, so, but it's just a, it's one of those hot words. I'm curious how you have, um, reconciled that upbringing. That is, I think something that has always been in process for me. Um, I grew up around really wonderful people who love Jesus deeply. Mm. And in that sense, I am very much um, grateful for the the religious environment in, in which I was brought up. I do think that as I have um, made different life choices, I, um, I moved to downtown Atlanta when I was 19 to live among the poor. And then I moved to Los Angeles where I was doing similar work mm. um, and back in Atlanta now. And all of that um, introduced me to experiences and life stories and situations where some of the pat answers from my religious childhood didn't hold water, Mm. um, which was really painful for me, honestly, to try to work through some of that. Um, and, but at the same time, I am a highly relational person. And so I always come back to the people in my life have loved Jesus deeply. And so while some of the practicalities of that may look different. I'm always trying to reconcile how do we live together as brothers and sisters who are all seeking to love God with our whole hearts. Um, And sometimes that looks a little different. Well, how how did that manifest itself with, I mean, because you're not, like a lot of people reconcile their, their, um, I guess their faith, especially as they become more differentiated in their early years and they go to college or they go, they're just, they're getting older and their brain is starting to kind of think for itself. But in your case, you're not only um, moving in different directions, but this is also like, it's, it's your dad, I assume was your pastor, right? <laughs> like, so how does, I guess I'm just, I'm asking, how does it work out to not only have this time of change, but it's also a real pulling away from what I would assume what your family is thinking. Um, my dad was my pastor. He, um, when I was very young, so he actually left when I was about five. So I didn't Mm -hmm. grow up as a PK necessarily. Um, but, but was still very much, my family was my first kind of spiritual teachers and nurtured my faith throughout, throughout my whole time at home. And so, yes, I think there sometimes is, um, Pain feels like too strong of a word, but there's a, a, a friction sometimes in working that out hmm. um, of how, how can we see things so differently when we have had a lot of similar formative experiences. But also I've seen how um, my parents, have their opinions also keep changing about things. And they, hmm. I think as, as they grow older and consider new things and as well as my own. And so I think as much as possible, trying to have grace in those conversations and relationships, the relationship is more important to me than being right. Most of the time (laughs) on my best days. (laughs) That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, so you, so you said at 19, you decided to move to Atlanta. It was kind of a quick point in your, in your summary of my ridiculously broad question, but like, (laughs) like what, how does, I mean, that's a pretty big shift and that's a pretty b- sure. big breakout of what you knew. What brings you to 19 to live in a completely different environment? Um, honestly, I think throughout high school, you kind of have that feeling of, well, once I get to college, like my real life will begin. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, you have teachers kind of saying, well, you understand school now, but wait till you get to college, you, you know, you're going to be blown away. And I think the church has a little bit of that messaging as well. 
um, I went to college and I felt like, is this all there is? Um, and I really felt like my faith at that point was, um, folk, very, very behavior focused, you know, it's kind of don't yeah. smoke, don't drink, don't go with boys who do mm-hmm. <laughs> like that kind that's of right. mentality. And I was like, that's fine. I, you know, for me, I didn't really struggle with feeling trapped. I struggled with feeling bored. Mm. Um, and so an opportunity, um, to participate with an organization called mission year came up when I was a freshman in college. And so I took a year off of school and moved to live in an intentional community, do volunteer work and, um, commit to living among the poor for a year. And that, as you might imagine, was a turning point, both in my faith and my kind of life trajectory. Yeah. Can you, my guess is that people listening to this are sort of on the, on the doorstep of some of those decisions. What, what did that year do for you? Cause yes, I can imagine it was really formative, but what were the things that were eye opening to you in that year? I, you know, I was drawn to moving to the city because I was drawn to living cross-culturally I was shocked to find poor people there. Um, it was so far removed from my own personal experience. Um, and to realize what living day to day in poverty really looks like, you know, I was waiting for the bus to take me to work. And just that one simple act alone of using public transit for the year, just opened my eyes to how hard it is to be on time, to Uh. not be wet. Um, just all of those kinds of things that play into, the challenges in, in holding a job and, um, but all of the little, all of the little indignities, I would say that, that crossed my eyes during that year that I previously just didn't know existed to be quite honest with you. Wow. That is very, it was a very practical answer. I, that, <laughs> no, but that makes sense. Cause you literally like lived in other people's shoes and you realized what their, um, their world is like. And so then kind of the next beat that you said in your, your summary was that you moved to Los Angeles. Was it the same sort of thinking that brought you to LA? Was it, I, I went to live in a new place and experience a new kind of people group or what, what brought you there? So I had, I went back to college after I finished mission year and then I went on to get a graduate degree in sociology. And yeah. so, um, the opportunity to move to LA came because I was offered a job with a, um, a Christian university there that had a program where students actually lived in Los Angeles for a semester, um, with immigrant families. And so I took a job uh, facilitating, um, that program. So helping students, um, finding housing, facilitating cross-cultural, um, disagreements that arose in some of those living situations, as well as, uh, the students did coursework where they studied world religions, um, immigration and other social issues. And all of that was experiential learning. So I would connect with organizations to do field visits and all of that kind of stuff. So it was really a dream job for me coming out of grad school. And, and while I was facilitating from a staff perspective, I was also learning so much because I was Mm -hmm. in a new environment. I was engaging new issues. Immigration specifically was very new to me. Um, even having, studied sociology, being in that Los Angeles context really opened those doors to a new topic. So really, I, I was curious where the, it was like the chicken or the egg. Was it meeting Billy that sort of sparked in you? But it sounds like it wasn't. It was you were already kind of curious about and learning more about immigration, not knowing that part of your story would be personally living it. That is an interesting <laughs> chicken and the egg question. I think it was, it all just came together at the same time. And so yeah. while I was, um, 
once I met him and we began to form a friendship and a relationship, I was also having this um, bigger picture education behind the scenes of what was going on, um, which was also something I tried to to do in the book. Yeah. Pull those two together. Right. And this is where I, I kind of jumped ahead, but Billy is now your husband. Yes. Yeah, I said that as a question <laughs> as if you didn't know. Why would I have said that as a question? Why didn't I just say it as a statement? I'll try. <laughs> I'm not editing any of that out. I, this is what happens in these interviews, things I say. Uh, so Billy is your husband, but also he is uh, one of the, the main characters, if you will, of your book. Can you tell me what what prompted you to write about your story with him and what is what is unique about you all? Yes, and he... He definitely loves the fact that he's the main character in my book. Um, <laughs> he's gotten a lot of mileage out of that. <laughs> that's right. Um, that's right. But essentially, when he and I first met, and you know, we were in our mid to late twenties, um, so we met and we kind of were, you know, interested in each other. And very early on, about our third date, uh, he told me that he was an undocumented immigrant. He did not say it as clearly and directly as I just said it to you. He kind of gave me a bunch of hints that I was not picking up because um, because I was so uninformed. So even though he, I look back now and he was kind of giving me all these clues and trying to tell me without saying it. I was what kind so of clue do you give a person that you're undocumented? <laughs> like, I don't know if, if I would pick up on any clue either. Is he, is he just yeah. saying like, tell me about your documents or what, what? is he doing? <laughs> Yeah, he kept asking to see my driver's license. Um, you know, he would say things like, you know, I came on a visa. I mean, he was kind of initiating these conversations about exactly how he got here. Um, and so, which he came in an airplane and he came with a tourist visa to the state. So from my kind of novice ears, that sounds all in order, um, right. which it was. That's what we would do, right. Mm -hmm. And so, but then he started to say, you know, but it's my visa is good for 10 years, but I'm, I can't stay longer than six months, which I did start to notice. Well, I know you've been here longer than six months just mm. based on our previous conversations. Um, and so eventually he, he really kind of laid it out for me that, that yes, he was, once he crossed that six month threshold, even though he had a 10 year visa, he was supposed to have left and he had not. Um, uh -huh. and then therefore his living and work and all of that was, a, was for all practical purposes, he was an undocumented immigrant. Well, we will put a pin in that thought and continue it in just a moment to hear more about her story and about Billy's story and what happens with them. But I wanted to remind you that the new activist is presented by International Justice Mission. IJM is working to end slavery in our lifetime and won't stop until all are freed. After 20 years of doing anti-slavery work around the globe, IJM is hosting really a momentous event. This Liberate Gathering is really a global gathering and will include all of IJM's staff and supporters and volunteers and you, pretty much everyone who is passionate about ending slavery. And you are, in case you didn't pick up on this, invited. Go to liberategathering.org to get your tickets. You can enter in the promo code THENEWACTIVIST and get $20 off your ticket, which is great. Why not save a little money? And then come, be there with us. We're going to be taping six episodes of The New Activist Live. You can come hang out at those and just be a part of really this 
this movement, this time together. I look forward to seeing you there, liberategathering.org. Here is the second half of a conversation that I got to have with Sarah Quesada. Um, can you tell me generally, like we understand what it means to be undocumented, right? But generally what, what does it look like for a person on a, on a day-to-day basis? How does it affect someone's life? Absolutely. I remember one of the first things that really struck me is that Billy was working in construction uh, when we when we were dating. And, you know, I had just taken a job at a university. I was fresh out of grad school. And when you are hired in a new place, you know, there's usually like new employee orientation. And mm. I distinctly remember um, sitting in this university conference room watching a safety training video where mm. it was predominantly about what could happen if you round a corner too quickly and someone's left the top drawer of a filing cabinet open. <laughs> and yeah. I was cracking up, you know, as people are clotheslining themselves on open filing cabinet drawers. And then when I met Billy and started asking him about his work, you know, I found out he had never operated a jackhammer until he was just on the side of the road operating a jackhammer. Um, hmm. And that, you know, no one in his company and the guys that he was working with had any, had training, had safety precautions, some of those things that I just really take for granted. But because everyone on these crews was, you know, without labor rights, essentially, because they technically weren't supposed to be working. Hmm. You know, there was just some of this that just kind of blew my mind. Again, I'm coming from this somewhat naive place of not really understanding what does that look like when you're in this really vulnerable place and Hmm. um, trying to work. And, um, you know, many of Billy's coworkers were older and trying to provide for a family. So they're going to do um, whatever they need to do to care for their family and yet kind of being put in these dangerous situations. And, and even in our case, things like, um, I would want to suggest, Hey, let's go out here. Let's go to this place. And, um, Billy was very hesitant to ever be driving, um, at, at nighttime because he's mm-hmm. like, you know, police presence is higher, um, in the evenings as they're, you know, trying to look out for drunk drivers and I don't want to get pulled over, um, and, and have to be in that situation. So, All these little things that for me, I hadn't necessarily thought of just as I began to see what was that looking like. And even, and I talk about this more in depth in the book, but, um, at one point he didn't get paid for, um, four weeks worth of work and how that both impacted me as his fiance at that time, but also recognizing how that affected him and his whole crew and how little recourse they had in that situation. Wow. It, it almost has like a, a strange parallel to when you're living in Atlanta and you realize the hardship of like having to take a bus and what that means for being wet and late to work. Mm-hmm. It's almost like just being around him had this really uh, kind of profound realization of just the practicality of how incredibly difficult it is to live undocumented, um, which then brings to the point you made, you're engaged at this point. So the relationship is progressing, but, um, tell me if you can, the, what, what complexities does that present in getting married? Cause I assume there's like a marriage license, but also what, what does it mean to marry someone who is undocumented? So we went to see a lawyer like the weekend after we got engaged. Um, so it was yeah. like, you know, 
secure secure a venue, buy a dress, see a lawyer. <laughs> That's right. It's the Maybe normal <laughs> right. It's the normal love story. Yes, um, we weren't we weren't setting up a prenup. We were just um, meeting with an immigration lawyer to say, um, well, I wanted to apply for a fiance visa, um, which you know a lot of the. I think the book Immigration Made Easy, I always joke, is like over 600 pages long. So <laughs> That's right. It kind of gives you this perspective of how difficult it is to get really solid information. And so we were kind of crowdsourcing things. You know, we couldn't necessarily share our, our situation with everyone that we knew. So you're very careful in who you talk to that about um, and trying to get information. So we were really set on trying to get a fiance visa because I thought, well, he's my fiance, so I'll um, be able to sponsor him and we can make that happen. And when we met with a lawyer, he was like, no, that's not going to work, <laughs> which was hmm. a little shocking. Cause I really thought, okay, we're, it's, it's a system. It's a process. I'm going to walk in, I'm going to do what I need to do and make that happen. Um, right. and <clears throat> in the course of our conversation with the interview with the uh, lawyer, we found out that, uh, Billy was missing a particular piece of paper. And it was that piece of paper that verified that he had entered the country legally. And the process is very different if you've entered the country legally and overstayed versus if you've entered the country illegally. Uh. Um, which again, to me, honestly, was eye opening because I felt like so much of the practicalities of how he'd been living out were similar. But now I saw there was this really steep difference in how that is dealt with. And honestly, um, coming from a perspective of, of justice and trying to understand kind of how things work in the world, recognizing that he was in a position of privilege, both having a passport from his home country, being able to get a visa in the first place and a, afford a flight here and all of those things, um, recognizing how different that circumstance is for many people. Right. But once we found out that he lost that paper, it, his, as the lawyer said, the story your paperwork tells is that you had a visa, but you chose to enter illegally anyway. Um, wow. Which while that wouldn't make any sense, he was like, that's what your paperwork says. And so, um, you know, we kind of, he was sort of laying out our different options, but once he found out that paper, he was like, you know, you might have to move to Guatemala and apply from there. And, um, it might take three months to 10 years, you know, Wow. <laughs> just that window. <laughs> Who knows? Right. No problem. So <laughs> save the date cards, send them out. Yes. And so, and, but, but what he also said was, we won't know until after you get married. Mm. And so for me, there, for me, there was a true calling of what does it mean to live in solidarity with someone who doesn't have the same privileges as you do. Um, or, you know, in this particular circumstance, he just wasn't able to gain access to residence in the same way that I already had. And so what does it mean to really, you know, tie your selves to each other and be in those situations together? Um, and it was challenging to kind of think about like, well, this, you know, this is different. I hadn't really been thinking about moving to Guatemala in the next year or so. Um, and, you know, we kind of played out some of those scenarios and tried to talk through what that would look like. and it was, it was startling and we weren't even married yet. And so recognizing that this was, I think in every relationship and every marriage, you really are 
joining your families and with the unknown in front of you. But I think for us, it felt like there was this very big question mark that um, I wasn't sure which way it was going to go. Right. Because I mean, but, but I mean, this is your, not your husband yet, but I mean, you, this is your person. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not like you're, it's not like you're yeah. thinking like, well, maybe I should back out of this because it's kind of hard. It's like, wow, this is, this is going to be a completely different path. Can, help me play, play devil's advocate if you can, if there is mm-hmm. a devil's advocate to this, because to me, it sounds like just very unjust. Like, why couldn't he just be in this country? But I also realized that there are a lot of people that would say, oh, well, he shouldn't have been here. He, he did do something that was sort of illegal or there, there isn't room for him. Help, help me understand any logical counterpoint to he should just be made a U.S. citizen and you all should be able to get married. Yeah, I think, you know, even as I talk about some of the challenges that, that he and his coworkers and different friends that we had at that time, um, as I was watching, what does it look like to be undocumented? What are the sort of details of that? You know, I, I know that there are there is a perspective of, well, that's the natural consequence of the choices okay. you've made. Mm-hmm. And for me, while I can recognize that countries have a right to make their own laws and countries have a right to make laws in their own interest and not necessarily considering how it impacts other people. For myself as a person of faith, I can't um, understand how you can I shouldn't say I can't understand it. I do understand it because it's human nature to put ourselves first and to do things mm-hmm. in our own best interest. Mm-hmm. But I feel that our our faith and our following of Jesus is in direct contrast to that. And so mm. um, the reality is that for, for people to legally immigrate here, so mm. Billy was here on a tourist visa, mm-hmm. which you know has this six-month limitation, but to actually be living in Guatemala, where he's from and say, I would like to move to the U S and build my life there. There are essentially three kind of pathways that are open. And sometimes they're called blood, sweat, and tears. Mm. So blood is that a a U.S. citizen family member applies for you. Um, Mm. and there's been some recent conversations about how that immigrants can bring unlimited numbers of family members. It's actually really, um, narrow. (laughs) And so, Mm. and it, it's, it's not immigrants actually can only bring spouses and, um, unmarried children with them. Mm -hmm. And, um, but U S citizens can apply for their spouses, married children and their parents and siblings. Mm. So it's kind of your, um, this immediate family, um, opportunity. So that's one path. The second path, um, sweat is being, is a company actually applies for you to come and live. And there's pretty strong, um, very specific specifications on that. It's usually jobs that cannot be filled by U.S. citizens and different things. And then there's tiers, which is also called asylum, which is different than refugee status because um, refugees actually apply in their home country and are assigned a country to go um, be resettled in and receive benefits. Asylum is for people who arrive um, at the border and declare, I'm here to declare asylum. And then they have to go through a process of proving that their life is in danger in their home country. So for someone like Billy, there, there are no avenues. <laughs> um, mm. Those, you know, those are, there's three different pathways that they're all very specific. And so for someone who's just a young adult who wants to go to a new country and, you know, work and do those things, there's not, there's not really a line to get into, if you will. 
I want to put an ellipse on the story of you and Billy because I want people to finish it in the book. And also the punchline <laughs> is you're in Atlanta with your with Billy and your two beautiful children. So mm -hmm. something ha something happened and we'll we'll let people get to it because I want to use the rest of our time to kind of shift into what you just started to talk about. And and I want to know, as you sit back and have a really unique vantage point to this, um, and also you engage really deeply with the church, and I think more specifically with the the Western, actually the U.S. church, how would you say, um, and again, this, this is another broad question, but how would you say the U.S. church is doing in uh, in engaging with this entire topic of of immigration and documentation and uh, yeah, where, where do you think we're at? You know, I did an interview with um, Alexis Salvatierra for an article um, regarding the sanctuary movement, which is essentially churches that open their doors and allow undocumented immigrants to live in their buildings. Um, mm -hmm. In the past, churches have been part of what's called sensitive spaces. And so typically ICE agents will not um, go into churches to make arrests. Um, and so they churches that declare sanctuary, it's usually either for two reasons. One, just to give a family or a person um, a chance to take a beat before they mm -hmm. decide what they're going to do. Um, or sometimes people go into what's called public sanctuary, where they're going to kind of advocate more broadly um, and, and live in the church um, as kind of a safe place. And so uh, she and I were talking about how the churches have engaged in that way. And one of the things that she said to me that stuck with me <laughs> is about how encouraged she has been in seeing churches rise up and say, we want to help. How do we engage? How do we serve people? And I think um, I've really tried to hold on to that because that's not always what we see in the news of how evangelicals are responding to immigration topics. Hmm. Um, and so I am encouraged by knowing that behind the scenes, churches are doing a lot to support immigrants, uh, whether that's teaching English, helping a refugee family resettle, um, sharing their church space with immigrant congregations. There's lots of ways that um, churches are loving their neighbor, if you will. I do think um, the topic of immigration itself is somewhat shrouded in mystery. <laughs> and so... Because yeah. people who are are living that experience can't always talk about it or maybe don't want to talk about it. And so I, I feel like one of the motivations for me in writing Love Undocumented was that I feel like when I engage with people around this topic, there is that heart piece of people want to care. They want to show compassion. They want to love their neighbors well, but they really don't understand what's going on or what that means or why people are here or what they're doing. And of course we can't just have borders where hordes of people are running in and, you know, and this, and some of that imagery and, um, you know, rhetoric that we see on the news or, uh, you know, in our Facebook feeds or whatnot, um, is really loud. And so while as the actual experiences and what's going on behind the headlines is often really quiet hmm. sometimes. Wow. That is a really different, much more hopeful answer than I than I was expecting. I, I it really seems like you have a perspective on this that things are not totally as they should be, but there are really there's there's a lot of beauty behind the the louder. Uh, well, the word you used was rhetoric, and that um, that was just interesting to hear you. Uh, I was just not expecting that. Um, <laughs> when, 
was writing this book hard? Because it's really deeply personal. How is it? I, I know this is sort of a process question, but what was it like putting yourself out there in this way? You know, some of it was really fun because we've been uh, married 10 years now. So it was fun to revisit some of those early days. And um, and especially now that I'm 10 years older, looking back and saying, what was I thinking in that particular mm-hmm. moment? Um, I mm-hmm. think all of us have that when we look back. Um, but at the same time, it was also really painful just because of the political climate of, of the time in which I was writing it. Um, and because I'd been writing articles for different places and, and also blogging, I would receive emails from couples saying, we're in your same situation. Please give us some hope or, um, you know, what are we going to do? And, and I, I feel like I carried that really personally into the writing of the book of even as I was living through the experience, I thought if people only knew they would think and speak differently about this issue. And so that was my hope with the book was to say, here, here is a couple, Sarah and Billy, (laughs) there's like, they're like so many other couples, but they have this engagement with this topic that not many people do. Um, Mm. and so, well, I shouldn't say not many people, it's millions of people are, um, walking through the immigration system, but yeah, but that's the funny dichotomy of this book is I don't know anybody that's walking like for mm-hmm. such a huge thing that's happening. You're right from your previous answer. It's a fairly silent kind of topic. I, I mean, we hear a lot of like you said on the news, but I don't know personally that and maybe I bet this is a lot of people listening and maybe, maybe it's just me, but we, we don't know a lot of people that are walking through this. And I wonder if it's because do you think it's because it's so sensitive for people to even just admit that they're undocumented, that they're walking through it, that there's a certain danger involved in admitting that they're walking through this? Or is it just because we're not ready to talk about it or something else? Um, It's incredibly vulnerable to admit that you're out Mm. of status. Um, Mm. And so, yes, I think people don't share that easily. And I think some People, depending on their circumstance, maybe aren't fully admitting it to themselves, or you also have young kids who don't know that they're undocumented. And so there's also just because it's so complicated and surrounded in somewhat of confusion and we and not necessarily knowing how to address it, sometimes we put those things aside, right? And we go about living our daily life. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. um, I mean, even again, in writing the book, reflecting back on our dating days, we weren't talking about immigration every day. I mean, mostly we were talking about the new Harry Potter book coming out and going to the beach and (laughs) all of those things that you talk about how we grew up, you know, while we were dating. And then every now and then we'd be like, Oh, okay. We, you know, we've got to deal with this immigration stuff. Right. Yeah, that's right. Um, last two questions for someone who is on a subway and is listening to this interview and (laughs) does not know anybody that is, you know, walking through your story, but feels a a pull to do something to help to, to engage in this somehow, what would you offer them as a first step? Well, buy your book. And then second, (laughs) I'll say it for you. After reading your book, what would you offer them as a way to really engage in this immigration? uh, I guess debate is the right word. I do believe that that relationships are at the core of change. I believe both when we see all of this fear rhetoric around us of that we need to be scared of the other and we need to be frightened of what people are trying to take from us, I believe relationships are an anecdote to fear. And so mm. if there is opportunities and ways to connect with 
immigrant families or, or immigrants that are trying to learn English or all of those different kind of ways that we can volunteer and participate. I think that's a great starting point where you can try to connect with people. Um, and not just because you want to connect with immigrants, but because there is a, a need to understand the world more broadly. And by building relationships across those cultural barriers, you are going to have your worldview enriched and and th those relationships will be very powerful. And so I'm a big proponent of that. Um, I also believe that relationships are necessary for sustaining hope and sustainability in justice work, because if you, if you just engage immigration and you're not, and not rooted in relationship, I think it can become very hopeless and very exhausting. Um, mm. I had an experience a few months ago. Um, there's a lot of political turmoil right now in Venezuela and um, has been a lot of immigration to the U.S. from Venezuela. And I was at a table with some Guatemalan friends and some Venezuelan friends, and they were telling these wild, raucous stories, and everyone was laughing. And I just thought, this is what helps keep the hope in this engagement around this topic, wow. because otherwise, some of the some of the um, policies that are being passed and the rhetoric in the news it can be very draining. And, mm. and I believe that connecting with real people, um, having, eating ice cream and cake, all of that stuff goes a long way for mm. um, kind of sustaining that work. But I would say also just to add, because I know some people don't necessarily know where to go to connect um, and build yeah. new relationships. Um, and if that sometimes I would say pray first and ask God to show you, because a lot of times immigrants, there's an invisibility to it. And so when people tell me there's, there's no immigrants in my community, I always think like first pray and ask God to, re to reveal those people <laughs> to you because yeah. there, there may be lots of immigrants and you may just not have noticed. Um, wow. but I would also say there are so many, I think starting, if you, if you have, can't find people in your community to connect with reading books by immigrants or immigrant stories, immigrant memoirs, all of those are really great ways to start to see again, what's going on behind the headlines and then how real people experience um, these things. And there's lots of great books um, about that. Man, that relationship as is an anecdote to fear is uh, uh, like, is going to rattle in my head. That was <laughs> really, that was really something. Um, uh, how would you define uh, the show is called the new activist and it's sort of one of those broad words that you know what it means and nobody knows what it means. Mm -hmm. So as, as someone who is self-described as an activist in your own bio, how would you just, how would you define that? You know, one time Billy and I were giving a talk about immigration. This was many years ago and mm -hmm. someone raised their hand and said, I'm an immigrant as well. Or someone in their family had gone through, I don't remember the details, but she said, you guys are just talking about this because it's recent. Like eventually you'll, you'll move on. Um, oh, interesting. and man, that has stuck with me <laughs> um, because hmm. the reality is our, our situation is, you know, tied up neatly with a bow at this point. And, hmm. um, I thought how easy would, would it be for us to slip into the worlds of diaper changes and basketball practices and, work and emails and all of those things and disengage from this issue because it no longer affects us. Right. And I think, hmm. um, while at the time I, I was a little bit kind of shocked when this person said this, I I'm really grateful for it now because I think 
when you talk about activism, you know, I see that as engagement. And so how does, how do we stay engaged? What does that look like for us? And, and because, you know, one of the things I often say is that immigration is really complicated, but loving your neighbor is really simple. And so Hmm. how do we figure out, I, I personally can't solve the immigration issue all by myself. There's a thousand yeah. different touch points of how we can engage in this particular issue. And for us, um, my husband is a natural entrepreneur and, um, and he, he is a U.S. citizen now, but he is also still passionately proud of his home country mm. of Guatemala. And so yeah. for him, he was like, started last year diving into what would it look like to start a business in Guatemala to provide opportunity for folks so that they have the choice whether or not they want to immigrate. Um, Mm. Because so many people are immigrating because they feel they have no choice. And so, you know, that's one way we've decided to kind of dive in and be like, okay, how do we set up a business? What do we do? And so he's been working on that for a year now and is getting closer to being able to, to move forward. And it's very exciting, but it's kind of, that's one of the ways that we have found to kind of engage um, the issue. And I hope that in the broad range of all the different responses that all of us can find ways to plug in. I feel like I understand an issue so much better when I'm able to kind of wrap my heart and my mind around a story, like how this really affects a person. And so I'm very grateful for Sarah coming on the show today and for sharing some of her story and for writing Love Undocumented. I hope that you will check out this book. The best place to go and buy it is on Amazon. Just go to, you know, just go to, you know how to use Amazon. I'm not going to tell you (laughs) how to do this. I will say, though, that there is a link in the show notes that will get you right to her book and let you buy a copy of it. I would love to know what you think. Also, follow Sarah's life. She has a great website, Sarah Quezada. Okay, here's how you spell it. Sarah, S-A-R-A-H-Q-U-E-Z-A-D-A.com. And of course, there will be a link in the notes as well. But follow along with her, follow her on social media. And I would love to hear what you think about the book and of her conversation and what questions you have. She's great on social media and we would love to chat with you throughout the week. The New Activist, of course, is on social media, Facebook, Twitter. Both of them are New Activist Is, all one word, New Activist Is. And our website is newactivist.is. Look forward to interacting with you on all of those different mediums. Our music today was provided by The Brilliance. Go to thebrilliancemusic.com to find out where they're touring and where you can buy their music. It is a joy to edit their music every single week for this show. If you have a moment, and I hope you would, please go over to iTunes and rate and review the show. A lot of people are finding the show because of iTunes, especially lately. It's just been awesome to watch, and I see so many comments of people saying, like, I just heard about this. What a great show. First of all, thank you for saying that. It's very humbling, but also they found it because you went and told them about it. So thank you so much for sharing about The New Activist. Fun stuff coming up. I'm not going to give you any spoilers, but this is going to be a fun season. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Sarah Quesada, my colleagues at International Justice Mission, as well as the Relevant Podcast Network, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. Thank you for listening to the New Activist Podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. And for more Relevant Podcast Network shows, check out the podcast section at relevantmagazine.com.